Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today I talk with two colleagues, Brian Dellett and Dick Hughes, men I've known for a long time. Both are actors whose lives have also been touched by our country's war in Vietnam. Dellett, my first guest, served in Vietnam after high school. Hughes traveled to Vietnam as a conscientious objector in his early 20s. The impact of the war has stayed with both of them. Brian Dellett's been on stage, in movies, and on TV. He's also a playwright. His play, Memorial Day, tells the story of a Vietnam veteran on the verge of suicide over a Memorial Day holiday. He developed the play in collaboration with the Actors Studio, with support from actors like Harvey Keitel and Ellen Burstyn. Memorial Day was 10 years in the making. Dellett started the play after 9-11. He was living in New York, trying to become an actor, and one of the planes flew over him that September morning. That's when all this Vietnam stuff got triggered uh, in, the, in a major way. And I started to take pieces of it into the actor's studio. And um, our icons there, uh, Norman Mailer, Harvey, Ellen said, you got to keep bringing more of this in. And this was the beginning of what would become the play Memorial Day. And Ellen was instrumental in helping me shape it in terms of having a beginning, middle and end. And also not having to totally rely on the um, exact details of my story. So that I started combining situations that served the greater truth of what I was trying to say. When you wrote this, and in the time you've worked on this, I'm wondering, did it bring about interaction with other generations of soldiers. Yeah, there were some older veterans, but there was the younger ones that started coming around. There was, a, um, I guess, like a halfway house around the corner from the actor's studio where men and women coming out of the service could transition into civilian life for like the next six months if they wanted to. It was on, I think it was on 43rd Street. And this uh, guy came and he had done a couple of tours in Afghanistan and I didn't really know him, um, but we said hello a couple times. And um, he said, if you do this again, would you tell me, let me know, how, how can I find out? And I said, well, you know, the, the studio will mention it. And I think it was like six months later, we did like two or three weekends at this little theater called The Drilling Company up on the Upper West Side. And um, he let me know that he was bringing uh, one of his buddies from Afghanistan that he had been with and that they were going to come and see it like the next night. I said, well, say hello afterwards. So they did. They came. And um, uh, because the play uh, really addresses the whole notion of suicide and the prevention of suicide ultimately is the goal of the play. So he, um, he comes with his friend and I guess it was the next day he uh, contacts me and he says, you remember my friend you met last night? I said, yeah. He said, we were... Uh, maybe two blocks away from the theater. And he stopped and said, I've been planning to kill myself for the last couple of months. I don't know what to do. 
at that time, I was thinking of stopping doing this because it was costing me money. It was no financial reward. So that meaning when that guy said that to you, that put the wind back in your sails for the project? Yeah, I just thought there's a purpose for this. You know, if one, if I can keep one guy from eating a bullet, you know. I want to go back and I want to just do a little quick timeline. So you grew up, born in Jersey, raised in Pennsylvania. Your dad yeah. sold bar-related materials, mixers, <laughs> alcohol, whatever. Cordials. Cordials. Uh, most of, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he was what they called a missionary. He was also a liquor salesman, but he, when he was at the height of his career, he would go around and he would present slideshows to the wholesalers in New Jersey and basically say, look, we use only purified water and we do this. And they'd have, and my sister and I have to sit through these slideshows where they show these guys. Yeah. Here's how much yeah. vermouth you want in that martini. <laughs> use an eyedropper, let's use an eyedropper. Yeah, right. yeah. And then you got drafted or you enlisted? Oh, I got drafted. Was your dad in the military? He was a World War II guy. He flew B-24 uh, Liberators. And uh, he was actually, interestingly enough, he was not like, you should do this. Like, my mom said, are you going to go to Canada? And I said, uh, no, I'm not going to go to Canada. And my father, he was interesting. He just said, I don't know if this one's for us. And where, where, where did you go to train? Uh, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And it was tough because that was the home of the 82nd Airborne. And a lot of those drill sergeants had already been to Vietnam. They were, uh, uh, in some instances, they were Rangers and they just didn't take any shit. Um, and uh, um, I, I don't know, I, I was surprised because I, I went in kind of laissez-faire, like, let's get this over with. And then when you have someone in your face like that and knows how to scare you uh, in the best way, and so, that, so it was a really, it was a really powerful um, preparation. And also, I didn't expect to thrive in the military. I didn't know, I didn't know it was going to be a good shot. Um, and I wouldn't even figure this out till a couple of years ago that the eye hand thing came from uh, archery when I was like 11, 12, 13 years old, because I'd never had to handle the weapon. I haven't had a weapon since the army. So it's like a, um, it was really weird to. to, to to suddenly go, wow, you can, you, you're an expert shot with an M14 and X16. So finally you go and you get over there. And I mean, you're an actor, so I'm assuming there's going to be an interesting uh, uh, description here. What does it feel like? What does it feel like? Okay, I'll get to that in one second. I didn't, I didn't see my first professional play until after I came back from Vietnam. So like... Like I, I had no, and I mean, I have to say, I think you're, you're picking up on something, which was, I guess I was recording this, you know, just, and I mean, I had the thing, I think Stone really captures it in a platoon when you get off the plane and you get hit with the heat and you don't know where you are and the smell and everything like that. It's just like, you feel like you've arrived at another planet. And so uh, um, in my case, I landed in Cameron Bay and then um, was uh, sent up to this uh, area, uh, the place was called Chulai. That very, the very first night, um, they gave us some bad chow. It was hot. This was uh, early March of 69. And um, they gave us warm beers and we sat down on these benches and they had this giant white plywood screen. And we watched the movie called The Devil's Brigade, a World War II movie. And then um, it was right after the movie, about 20 minutes after the movie. And, and I had just talked to this guy from Philadelphia. We were talking about acapella. Anyway, after the movie, all of a sudden the rockets came in. We were getting rocketed. And I didn't know what the hell was happening. And, and I, they didn't tell us. They didn't tell us where the bunkers were. I, you could see them, but I, I wasn't paying attention. You know, I didn't expect to get hit that night. But the rockets poured in. And um, there was all this screaming and they black out everything. They turned the lights out right away. And it's like, I hit the dirt, I'm in the sand and I can't see anything. And it was in that moment that I felt this androgynous something next to me. Maybe just give me a kiss on the cheek, you know? And it was really, I felt it was like this beautiful form of death. And um, I remember thinking, no, no, I'm not going to do that with you, you know, and... Like and Jessica I, Lang and all that jazz. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. 
And so I, I pushed that away. And it was at that moment I, I made this vow that somehow, some way I was going to get home. For people like when you're in Fort Bragg and you're getting ready to deploy and go over to Southeast Asia, do you basically, are you basically told in any terms, whether they're vague or specific terms, are they basically, are they telling you, you're going to the shit, man? Like you're not going to work in some telegraph office, you're not going to edit movies, you're going to get a gun and you're going to the thick of it. Do they no. tell you that when you're on your way no. to July? No. And they if don't tell you where you're going. One plus, you don't know if... It's hard to describe the... Where is uh, Chu Lai in the topography and the geography of, of Vietnam? It's, um, if you uh, go back to when it was a half and half, north and south, um, there was a, the second largest city was Da Nang, and Chu Lai was about 70 miles, 75 miles south of Da Nang, along the coast of, of the South China Sea. When you were there, what do you do, like drugs, alcohol, sex, food, whatever, what did you do? to get through the experience of two years of this? Wow. I, um, well, I lived for the letters that would come from my girlfriend, Carol, and from my mom. My dad never wrote to me the whole time. And I didn't even notice it. Why do you think? The rationalization, which I would find out in psychoanalysis years later, <laughs> was, just, oh, he's not a letter writer. It's like, you mean your father? I think this is me getting nailed by the shrink. Did he need to disengage because he thought maybe you weren't going to come back? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I finally When you came back, what did he say? Well, I, I never brought it up because I just accepted it. Because it was like if people said, did your dad write to you? I'd say, no, my mom wrote for both of them. I had it totally rationalized. But I lived for the letters. I lived for the letters. Um, uh, the letters from Carol and the letters from my mom were like, life-sustaining. They were tethers. And as far as the day-to-day, -day, it's truly one day at a time living. You're looking at the calendar all the time. You're seeing guys who are going to leave in 30 days. So you see guys that are leaving and you just, you feel that thing in your chest. It's like, God, when's that, when's that day going to come? There were two times I cried in Vietnam. Um, once when I was in the hospital, I had skin problems that were really bad. The other time was when I left the day I had to leave my company to come home. I was walking to go to the Jeep with my duffel bag and a couple of the guys I was tight with were following me and I started shaking. I didn't know what was going on. I thought, what's the, I've been living for this day and um, I'm like, I'm coming apart, you know? And I, uh, and of course they're laughing. They're like, ah, man, you're going home, you know? What's your version of why? One was, uh, I made it. I'm going home. Um, I have my opinions, but that's one of that's one of the most profoundly human emotions you can feel is to finally be escaping the clutches of a situation that you prayed would be over, and it's finally over, and you just collapse. Why do you think you collapsed when it was over? You know, I have to. I wanted to fit this in. I know I hope it's not a non sequitur, but it says opportunities arrived to appreciate life's beauty mysteries, truths, and heartbreak to understand life on a higher plane. That's from your memoir. That's funny. That's so funny. Anyway, I don't mean to throw that at you like this, but it, I felt it yesterday thinking about it, which was this is maybe a conversation about transformation. Well, talk about it. We have so much to cover. Therapy, forget about suicidal and the deepest uh, uh, painful thoughts, but how soon do you... Uh, want to go to therapy after you get back? How soon? Oh, I, I got sent to a shrink at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. I had to do my last few months at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. So I was basically going back and forth from home. But it, it, was, a, it was a disaster because I didn't trust the guy. I mean, the key, the key things with most veterans, and especially coming out of these situations, is trust. You know, who to trust. You didn't trust him, why? I just didn't trust him. I didn't think uh, I wasn't going to talk to him at all. And I trusted the bars. I was in, into the bars and drinking. And I, cause I didn't drink that much in Vietnam. I had a lot of responsibility. So I, I took it pretty seriously. And uh, um, I mean, I, I'd smoke grass once in a while and stuff like that, but it was, uh, it was really about the work. And, and also I wanted to be as responsible as I possibly could. When I got home, I thought I would sleep for the next two weeks when I got home. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep for more than two hours a night. 
And every night I was out drinking and I had a load of cash and uh, I got into trouble a couple of weeks after I was back because I wasn't 21 yet. And in Pennsylvania, you know, and I was getting away with it because uh, in those days you had a military ID where you had your picture on it. So, and I was a big kid, so they, they didn't even look at it. And, but then I, you know, I got into this uh, scrap with this um, owner of this bar and uh, I got in trouble. And it was, it was long, not long after that, there was a situation where um, I was in, uh, in New Jersey and there was a very violent incident that took place um, like right next to me. And it was the day after that, thereabouts, I just decided I had to do something with my life because I was wrecking cars. I was just, I was feeling like it was me against the world. And, um, uh, and I just didn't trust anything or anybody. And, I and how was it with you? How was it with your girlfriend and your parents who were primary to you while you were overseas? What was it like when you re-engaged with them? Um, I scared them. Um, my girlfriend, uh, Carol just kind of, she wanted to keep like this distance, you know, and it was, uh, um, and of course that made me crazy. And, and we'd had this incredible, um, uh, relationship, really romantic and all that stuff before I went over there. And when I got back, you know, a year can change a lot of life in a 19, 20 year old. And, uh, so, um, so we had trouble you know, finding our way back to each other. Did it end? Uh, eventually. It was often, it became a volcanic thing for the next few years. I mean, what about your parents? Um, uh, my, my dad was really worried. My mom, they were worried continually. Like, what's he doing now? You know, there would be like, they'd see me open up the trunk of the car and it'd be like, you know, a bunch of coats from the army, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. They didn't know what was going on. So, well, what, what were the coats? Well, they were, you know, like um, fatigue jackets or they were those kind of uh, dress uh, army coats and stuff. Well, what like were that. you doing with them? Oh, I, had, I was giving them away half the time. I didn't right. care. You know, it's just, I was, and if somebody wanted to buy one, I'd sell it for five bucks or something. Right. When does the uh, acting, playwriting, when do the arts take hold? Uh, my second year of college. Where did you go again, you said? Bucks County Community College in Pennsylvania. What did you study? I started just generally and because I was terrified of college because I'd had bad reading, learning problems all through school. And so my, some confidence came from the Army in terms of work ethic and stuff like that. But I took a reading course to learn how to really read. I had cite things that I was doing that would never been corrected from the time I was a kid. I got this guy. He saved me. He just he set me up for college. It was uh, first year. I got my confidence because I, I got this reading problem taken care of. And then in my second year, I was thinking pre-med because I had this confidence I didn't have before. But I, I took this acting class because I couldn't get the math teacher I wanted. I, he said, get me next semester. So I, uh, I took this acting class and uh, two weeks into it, the guy said, uh, can you stay for a minute? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, you should drop out. <laughs> why? why? Why I love that. Bad? He said, "Well, you're not you're not getting up. You're not working. You can't just watch." So he gives me a monologue from your good man Charlie Brown, and it's when Snoopy goes up to fight the Red Baron. He said, "Come back with this next week. Don't come back." And so I did, and I came back, and it scared the shit out of me. But I, I had a, I had a great time, and I felt like you know I wanted to work further into this fire. Then I got into this play, and then I started taking classes. And when I transferred to Ryder, they had a really great little theater apartment there. Yeah. And they were right down the street from McCarter, which is where I would do this internship the following year, uh, my senior year. Um, oh, it was in this melodrama called Deadwood Dick. And uh, who wrote that? I have no idea. Forgotten. It's from like the 1920s or something. Yeah, really. Uh, I played the sheriff and it was bigger than life and I had Popeye arms. Well, where, where did you do that? Where? at Bucks County Community College. Right. I was terrified, but there was something there for me. I knew there was something there for me. I had what, no what, idea. What, what was there for you? What? There was a sense of purpose and there was a sense of a, kind of just a approval. It's like you could get this approval. Fitting in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also the thing too that, that you get from the military, and I'm just thinking of this now, but from the military and uh, theater film people is you have a community. You know, it's a very specific community, and uh, it has its own language. It has its own Bingo, bingo. bingo. You're, part, you're, you're part of a society. You get into a society where there are rules and, uh, and beliefs 
I don't want to say it's a religion, but it's rules and beliefs and language and codes and references that are just unique. But you're in a world where, you know, the passion yeah. runs pretty deep. So you walk out a writer with a degree in theater. Yes. And where do you go? New York. I moved to New York. Right. And I don't know anybody. Um, and where do you live? Well, my first apartment was on the Upper West Side. It was on 98th between Riverside and West End in the, <laughs> when it was the Dodge City days. Yeah, I call it the wild, wild west. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Wild, wild west, baby. Yeah. Oh, so you're there on the Upper West Side. And do you tell yourself, I'm going after this professional thing? Or you were, because you sound unsure about a lot of things in your life. Yeah. Did, no, did, you, I, I did you have the confidence to turn pro? No, I worked in restaurants. Right. I worked in restaurants for four, almost four years. And 1978, I started having nightmares about the war. And it was like freaky. It was like, it was like if you touched the stove and it was hot and six months later, you, you feel your hand burn. It was like that kind of, like, I didn't know what to do with it. So I mean, I, a pure PTSD. A pure yeah, exactly. But, it was, but they didn't have the name for it yet. So I did go to the VA. And when I got to the front entrance, when it was located on 23rd Street, I threw up. And I thought, ah, I'm not supposed to be here. That's what that means. I ended up working with this guy, Larry Stern. He was a psychoanalyst and he really, angel that walks among us, he, he was the one who really get out of the hole that I was sinking in at the time. As I was drinking too much and it was just a, it was a. You got sober uh, right here. Uh, let's see. I stopped on my own in 85. I got into um, a recovery program, the recovery program in 88. 88. So, so, um, Seventy-five. You're in the city, ninety-eighth, and uh, near Riverside, the wild, wild west. And and uh, when does the actor studio uh, become an avenue for you? Oh, not until um, I was really putting my nose to the grindstone when I met you. We did, yeah, we that, did little, movie that little yeah. little student thing. Yeah. When I got my first job on a soap opera. Uh, in New York, they would put you in the show very sparingly. They wanted to kind of build you into the show. So you didn't have much to do. So I worked maybe a day. I mean, if I worked two days a week, it was it was epic. And uh, they paid you per show. And I went and did a play, uh, Summer Tree, a young guy whose family were pretty well-to-do. They would produce him in these plays. And I played, you know, the event, like the kid would go into war and I would play the soldier. I would play, I played all the other ancillary characters in these little bursts. So I do the play. And then I would go to the student film bulletin board at NYU and they'd have casting cards put up on the in index cards, wanted. And I would read them. And I ended up in a bar in Brooklyn with you. Because while I was doing the soap. Right, yeah. And we shot that weekend and the bar was closed and that crazy fucking movie about so who you, you were an alien or I was an alien. Who was the alien? I don't know. I mean, I was, ah. a, I was, playing, a, I was playing a pretty weird guy with a, <clears throat> yeah. a spider on my cheek or something. Yeah. yeah, I think you were the alien. I think the bartender <laughs> was from outer space and you were a bartender with some crazy shit. But anyway, so um, you get your equity card when? Uh, 81. I worked in both productions in Central Park. So how, did that, how did that happen? Oh, because... Uh, I knew no one, so I went to the public theater back in like December of '80 or thereabouts, and I dropped off a picture in Resume because they had that open door policy. And I met a woman named Ellen Marshall who worked for Rosemary Tischler, Stanley Sobel, Ellen Novak, and I gave her my picture in Resume, and she said, "We're not doing generals for at least another six months." I said, "Oh, okay, well, thank you." And I went back, of course, six weeks later. You were here before, right? I said, "Yeah." She's, "Well, I'm going to tell you again. It's not going to be another six months." I said, "Okay." Of course, I came back again. I came back in March. And then she said, and I've been polishing up these couple of these good monologues. One was a one from Henry V. One was uh, a contemporary piece. And uh, she um, she says, OK, come back in two weeks. Call me in two weeks and come in with a classical monologue and contemporary. I said, OK, fine. I show up. She said, OK, here we are into April. She said, now I want you to come in. And you're going to audition for the three casting directors. So I come in and audition for the three casting directors. Then... Stanley has me come in and audition for Des Makinoff for a small part and a bunch of fighting stuff in Henry Ford. So I go in for that. And then, um, and the callback for that, Ellen Novak came in and watched it. And I had no idea that um, I got into Henry Ford. And then they called me the next day and they said, can you also understudy in The Tempest for like Stephen Keats and a couple of other actors? And I said, yeah, like, holy shit. So that was like the doorway was opening to like start to work in the business with great people. 
And then, and then uh, the studio becomes an option when? Not for another few years. I, and, and how does I, that happen? Well, I did plays at the, um, at the public. I did, a, I did a, a Hamlet with Diane Venora that Joe directed. I, I saw you in that. Oh, that's right. I got you uh, one of the posters, I think. Yeah, I love that. Jamie, uh, um, who played Fortinbras at the end. Jamie Sheridan. Jamie yeah. Sheridan. Oh, proud death he came in. <laughs> I loved him. I loved him. I loved that production. Yeah. I loved Diane Venora in that part. Yeah. Pat He's... was going to be the first man to cast a woman in a major production. And I thought she was fantastic. I loved it. It was she exciting. Was really great. It was exciting. Yeah. It was just something about the humanity of it. It was so, so beautiful. But I, I was in a play with a combination of Vetco and the public that Joe and this guy Tom Burke put together. So the play Tracers came in to right. be. Tracers was, we did that, we did that for I think eight or nine months play. there. Yeah. And then we did it in, in London for, at the Royal Court for a couple of months. Harvey uh, Keitel and De Niro came one night. That's what would lead me to the studio. There was a guy who had asked me to do a scene with him there. And they said, oh, we can't have a non-members coming in and Harvey said, oh, I know this guy. Then I worked and at that time, back in those days, they wouldn't, it was 86, I think, the moderators would not, they wouldn't give you any comments. But then Ellen had taken over for me to run the place and she gave me this kind of, a, I don't know what to call it, like a guest status. So I got to do that. And then there happened to be a play we're doing, we ended up doing Buried Child. And um, she said, that's going to be your final audition, because I auditioned a couple of times uh, for judges and they said very different things. And that was, and she said, let's see what you do in the very child. And then I got in with Michael O'Keefe and a couple other people. And that was 87. Tell, tell people in the time we have left, because there's so many other things I want to ask you. Describe what is Memorial Day about? What's the, what's the story? It's a guy who's on the verge of suicide. He's basically going to take himself out. How old? Vietnam veteran age. I'm 71. He's basically got the gun under his chin. And here comes this character I call Sister Blister, the one he met that first night in Vietnam. And here she comes. And she's ready to help him. She wants him to come over. And there's a, he hesitates because he's gotten a, a voicemail from his daughter who's concerned. And it breaks his resolve. And he freezes. And he goes into this netherworld with her because she wants him to be clear about his decision. And they go through this gauntlet of memories. The play is about remembering. That's one of the most important things veterans can do. Remember their stories, share their stories, and have the people around them, whether they're veterans or non-veterans, to be able to listen. When was the last time you did it? Uh, out here at the Road Theater, it was perfect. And they had projections. Wow. I'd always wanted to do it with projections because when we took it to Vietnam, when I did it over there, I did it with their one of their actresses, she did it in Vietnamese. Her part in Vietnamese, I did mine in English. We had what was that uh, like? Subtitle. Oh my god! Oh my god! Did you and she have a tear in your eye together? A couple times. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yes, yeah, she. Oh, no, I feel it. We had two nights there in Hanoi, and there were talkbacks. And when I was there as a soldier, she was seven years old, and um, and and she had the year before she had done Dollhouse, Ibsen's Dollhouse. Before that, they did uh, All My Sons. When they found out I was from the active studio, they got all excited as well. When they did the stage presentation, it was a 400-seat house. They had uh, screens, big screens on both sides with Vietnamese uh, translations for what I was saying and English translations for what she was saying, subtitles. What year was that? We did the play over there in 2014. What was your first time you'd returned to Vietnam was when? 2012. You went back to Vietnam for the first time in 2012? Yeah. For what yeah. purpose? I went as a veteran because uh, this guy, Dr. Edward Tick, and his organization came and saw the play in workshop when Ellen was helping me. Um, and uh, we did, um, he saw it and he said, you should take this to Vietnam. And I, I just thought that was stupid. I just said, no, that's, I'm not doing that. He said, he said, you'd be surprised the Vietnamese are more curious about the American point of view now than, than ever before. So I went over as a veteran and I met the cultural ministers then in the second trip, we set up the whole thing. And then the third trip, we went, we went there. And, um, uh, and, and I just, can I share one thing? I, I got to tell please, you. Please, please, please. The second trip, um, I got away from, I was in Hanoi, and I took a plane down to Chu Lai, the place I was telling you about before where I was first in the right. country. And I was standing on the ground there. And um, it was right by the ocean. And I had three Vietnamese with me, a videographer, a driver, and a translator. 
I said, guys, I just need a minute. And I just went, I just wanted to be quiet and still. And I got on my knees and there was um, this feeling slash voice, which was of the guys who did not get back. And they were saying, we're okay. And so are you. And it was from that moment on that something broke in a deeper level where I started to see their humanity, their divinity, because before that, a lot, there was a lot of white knuckling. And I don't trust these people. I don't, I don't see anything divine in these people. Yes, there's a lot of beauty here. Yes, there's this and that and the other thing. But that was a, that was a, that was a cathartic um, uh, moment. That was beautiful. Also, I just wanted to mention too, with the whole saga with that with that play Memorial Day, and having done it in Vietnam in front of the former enemy, and then uh, having filmed it, and uh, my good friend Robert Duncan is putting together what I think we have our close to our final uh, rough cut, and so um, yeah, we we want to start to take it out to you know whoever will look at it. So this involves soldiers who return, who you might interact with, if at all, I'm not assuming you do, but if you interact with men, people who see the play, people who've had whatever level of PTSD experience themselves, what do you tell them? What's your advice to them? And what's your advice, oh. to, and what's your advice to young actors? Oh, okay. So give me, give uh, me the soldier first. Well, the soldier first is, uh, I feel that the most important components for PTSD recovery is a combination of spirituality and community. And the bottom line too is PTSD, if I think I can handle it by myself, it will crush me. Bottom line. Don't be ashamed to ask for help. Ask for help. That's Brian Dellett. He lives in LA today. If you want to hear more about the war in Vietnam, take a listen to my conversation with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick on the making of their 10-part documentary about Vietnam. When Americans talk about Vietnam, we just talk about ourselves. And that right. what, what we needed That's to do movie. was to triangulate with all the other perspectives, not just the enemy. It's finding out what the civilians felt, the enemy felt, the Viet Cong felt, but then our, our allies, the South Vietnamese, who get treated like, you know what, all the time, and their civilians and their protesters, as well as all the servicemen that we did, and everybody all the way out to deserters and draft dodgers, across the American spectrum. And if you then do that, then the kind of political dialectic loses its force because you realize that more than one truth could obtain at any given moment. The rest of that conversation can be found in our archives at heresthething.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. 
And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. As a young man, Dick Hughes thought he was going to enter the priesthood, but then he transferred to Carnegie Mellon for theater and wound up at Boston University for graduate work in the same subject. This was the late 60s. The draft was underway. Hughes was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, but he ended up getting a journalist visa and going to Saigon on his own. He founded a wire service in Vietnam, but his focus became the street kids, those making do on the street, hustling, shining shoes, and stealing. Hughes opened a shelter for these children called the Shoeshine Boys Project. This led to a foundation with support from people all over the world, including Hughes' family and friends from his hometown in Pittsburgh. He's from a big family. One of seven Catholic family. Pittsburgh. And lived in Pittsburgh, uh, right below the hill section after which Steve Boschko named Hill Street Blues. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, Irish Catholic family. And uh, yeah, I at one point uh, was looking at the priesthood. Do you know uh, why? What was, the, what was the sense of I why? I think the, the drama of the Catholic Church and, and, and the, the power, in a sense, that a priest has. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that is kind of attractive. I thought about becoming a priest yeah. Yeah. The oldest son of an oldest son in an Irish Catholic family is yeah. supposed to become a priest, I was told. They sold me that idea, but I went off into actual drama. Another kind of drama. You don't go to Vietnam first until sixty eight, correct? I don't go to Vietnam until uh, nineteen sixty seven. So yeah. As I was in Bo- at the graduate school in Boston and then the theater company of Boston, uh Vietnam became so enormous the uh a moral question. Uh, that it was, I was hard to concentrate on my acting because of that. So yeah, that's when it really started uh, kind of eating away at me. And I think in some sense I was in a bit of a, a quiet rage about it in the sense not understanding why we were doing that uh, and seeing things like uh, the generals shooting the Viet Cong uh, in the head and stuff like that. That really, uh, so at that point uh, I got drafted. So then 67. I had to decide uh, in, in 66, 67, yeah, I had right. to decide... But uh, I now decided, uh, okay, I think what I'm going to do is refuse induction and go to Vietnam. You were going to be I decided be that subjective. I was going to go to where the center where this was happening. Why? Um, I'm going I'm going to face this head on, and I, I'm not going to do it your way. I did it my way. And so I decided to go to Vietnam. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections, and I had no money, and I didn't tell anybody. Um, and, you did, and you went there to do what? I was going to go there just to try to do something to help people who were affected by the war. I had no idea what it would be. I was able, because the university newspaper covered my draft uh, refusal, to get a, an accreditation from Boston University News and go as a, quote, journalist, unquote. Uh, I actually did end up doing some journalism. I ended up traveling with the Marines and the Army, ended up starting Dispatch News. And you filed stories with who? Uh, we started our own news agency called uh, Dispatch News, which Cy Hirsch broke the Milai story through, uh, and with Asians French Press, uh, AFP Wire Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, and I also, uh, you know, I, 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 I wanted to kind of get into combat and find out if my philosophical objections were more than just speculation sitting in Boston. And so I kind of thought, I'll go in to where the battle is and see. And I wasn't there a week when we walked into an ambush. And um, 
uh, and I had a corporal beside me, a radio operator bleeding from the head, and a uh, sergeant comes back under all this fire and hands me a cocked forty-five and says, they're coming up on the rear. As soon as you see them, <laughs> start firing. And, and I'm, what's wrong with this picture? This is a conscientious objector in a foxhole at Contienne uh, uh, with people coming up on the rear who may kill you. Uh, and I, a million things go through your head at that time. How many know? other people that you encountered over there were like you? Nobody that I encountered. There were free agents. There were no there. free agents that I encountered. Uh, there were some conscientious objectors who stayed in the Army and were uh, uh, medics. There were some conscientious objectors with the Quaker organizations, the Mennonites. But I haven't yet run into anybody who just packed up and flew off to Vietnam and got into the airport. And when the whole place cleared out, said, all right, now where do I go? Um, I also early on also met some of these street children mm -hmm. whom shined shoes and made their living in the uh, streets. And when I uh, got an apartment, I would mention from time to time, you know, if you folks want to come down, you're welcome to uh, eat, shower, do whatever you want. It took a while. They were like, yeah, 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 yeah. But they finally did come down. So I was on two tracks. Uh, it was covering the war out with the military. And it was uh, starting uh, this home for these street kids. After a year, I decided to turn this over to some Vietnamese students and friends. So I spent the next uh, seven years raising support. Those students brought in other students, opened up eight homes. They helped 2,500 children during the war. You stayed in Vietnam yeah, until 76, so after the fall? I stayed uh, about 18 months after the fall. I was... I may just be still doing the same thing, or did your no, work evolve? No, I, well, I was winding down the project. You know, uh, I think I'm, if not the, I'm one of the last Americans to leave. I felt that that there was no reason to evacuate, and I, it was really tragic that so many uh, NGO, voluntary agencies, and charities were v evacuating uh, with uh, the, the uh, remaining military and and the embassy people, uh, because I thought you can't just drop a project. Uh, and in August of 76, uh, I came back uh, to New York to close the foundation down and to go back to acting, finally. Mm -hmm. That's a, that was the plan. Yeah. You were sitting the there saying, I mean, I have this image of you having tea in some cafe in Saigon, <laughs> and you're reading uh, Variety. Uh, that's no, I always had in the back of my mind, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. I want to be an actor. I love acting. I, did you, you do any of it over there? I didn't do acting you didn't over set there. Up an acting I school did get over a, there? No, because you know, I was going, I'm like a doctor in an emergency room. We were going 24 7. We were in mortuaries and hospitals, and you know, there was no, there was never a day off. There's never a vacation, and there was never a uh, surcease in the tension that was there. It was, it was racing, racing against time through the whole thing. And those are connections that are forever. And so I kept in contact with sending a little money to help pe people from where I could. That human rights thing, uh, you know, that uh, 90 to 96 to get those two guys out. And then in 2005, coming across uh, Philip Jones Griffith's Agent Orange book, and saying, you know, the last thing I need is another Vietnam humanitarian thing. But the pictures are so graphic. So when you, when you describe to me when you first came across this book. This is uh, uh, one of the best photojournalists uh, in, uh, that came uh, well, covered the war. I have a copy wars. of this that you gave me. Yes, yeah. Philip Jones Griffiths. It's called Agent Orange, Collateral Damage in Vietnam. Philip uh, covered the war, and a lot of his photos are used over and over iconic photos uh, that you see from time to time. But then he went back after the war many times, and he went to villages where Agent Orange had been sprayed and where people had been horribly uh, deformed uh, and affected uh, illnesses by it. And he came out with a book that is just dedicated to Agent Orange, The Collateral Damage. Mm. And, Did you ever uh, meet him? I knew Philip very well from, from he came to the Shoeshine Boy House in 1970. Oh, you knew him over there? So I knew him over there. Oh, he was wow. a good friend. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're What's trying, the work now? Well, the effort is to get, I want to jumpstart serious aid to some 3 million victims in Vietnam through the U.S. Congress. Uh, we've had some success with that, but Agent Orange is like below the radar. No president from Ford on ever put... Agent Orange in the budget. None, Democrat or Republican. You have soldiers on each side of the war in Vietnam who had healthy children before they went, go to the battle, fight where it's sprayed. They come back. They have one, two horrific uh, births 
And they go, yeah, that's kind of anecdotal, you know. I think what they have to do is get damage in, done to their own D- DNA material. Yes. Uh, they're in denial about it. But it's not because it's political. It's just a kind of lethargy of the bureaucracy. And I also, I think people who are just new to it feel it's just one more thing they, they can't make any difference about. What can I do? Are, are, are children income. with defects as a result of dioxin still being born over there? Absolutely. There are. The to thing this is, day. Do, to this day, yeah. dioxin is so lethal, little parts of it. Are, are, can wreak havoc. And dioxin doesn't go away. It stays. And it's in the soil, et cetera. And people think that Agent Orange is past history. Right. And you say, no, it's right now. And it's three million victims. Now, when you came back here, you came back where? To New York? To New York. How had New York changed? New York was dense, full of people. Uh, they didn't talk to each other on elevators like they did in Vietnam. <laughs> Nobody held hands or touched each other. <laughs> that was a little bit of a cultural adjustment. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I was so I was on two tracks there: closing down the foundation and uh, going back uh, into acting. When you come back, how had you changed from being over there? Um, you know what I think one of the biggest changes I experienced, especially it came out of combat. Um, before I went, and I saw things like I mentioned the the uh, general Saigon general shooting the Viet Cong soldier in the head. That famous photo. I jumped right out of my seat at that time, and I thought, how could we be doing this? How could we be involved with this? But what I learned in combat was uh, my darker side. I learned that I, too, under certain circumstances, could be capable of the same thing. So I think what I got in education is a, a more rounded sense of what human beings are and how I could employ that in drama. That's why I love drama so much, because I think it, it can articulate almost what can't be, quote, articulated, unquote. People can sit at a drama and go, yes, yes, without saying exactly what it is. And to me, that helps avoid wars. That helps uh, humans grow. So I, I actually saw theater in just as sacred or as just as profound a uh, sense as I did the acting work, as the, I'm sorry, the uh, social work that I was doing in Vietnam. I felt it was as important. You saw your darker side. Do you want to articulate that more? Meaning, you're not talking about like me lie. You didn't think I'm capable of anything. Oh, I think human beings are. No, I am capable, depending on the circumstances, sure. depending on being pushed to it. I think that's what drama is about. You know, you know this. Uh, when you're playing a character who's up to something reprehensible, you play them on their terms. You know, you have to justify why they do that. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, people who, who are, are toying with the darker side are justifying it in some respects. Uh, and to me, that's as much a part of the human uh, uh, soul as uh, the uh, some of the brighter side of it. When you get a sense of that you have that capability to do that, you're less about judging other people and you're more about, I just got to use all my time to, in this case for me, uh, presenting theater in a sense that will help educate people and answer questions that are out of the context of black and white or, or uh, debates back and forth. The... Uh because you've dedicated so much of your life to theater, to acting, uh, in and around your uh, relief work and your advocacy work. Uh, had you ever thought about writing a play? I about have actually. Your experiences? <laughs> I have. About uh, the Shoeshine Boys and about a young Dick I, Hughes arriving there? And, <laughs> um, I don't know who would play a young Dick Hughes. I could get a little makeup. Down in the- <laughs> no, we'll no. get the right. We want to no. sell some tickets, so we'll get the right guy to play the young. We are going to, I think, do a kind of documentary because uh, uh, we have a lot of film footage and stuff like that that would show how to work in another country and do it effectively. That's one thing. The uh, when you come back, um, and uh, is it safe to say? That acting is, the, is, is is your primary focus when you come back. You, want, you want to get back to that, yes. and you want to give that everything you've got. Yes. And is it a case where you have this lingering empathy for what happened back there, and you're haunted by what you saw? Stop me if I'm getting too melodramatic. <laughs> but, 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 but it's like the Godfather Part 3 line. Uh, they, they keep pulling me back in, you know what I mean, the Pacino line, meaning do yeah, you go there and you want to, are you done with that? No, I think, here's the funny thing about that. It makes a huge, it, it's forever there, and those are connections that are forever. And so I kept in contact with sending a little money to help pe- people from where I could. So it was, I always had a sense of being pulled 
again, you know, the tide is dragging me uh, kind of back in, but acting still being the first priority. But interestingly enough, I made three post-war trips, 2001, 2008, and 2016. And when I was, and, and I, when I left Vietnam, there was nothing emotional much about it when I got on the plane and left, which I thought was kind of odd, making that break. But uh, uh, the first trip back, uh, some of the grown street kids and their families and other friends who worked with me uh, set up visits, all reunions and kind of stuff. And we went to the airport. They'd all taken a day off they couldn't afford. And as I went up into the section, uh, transition section, transit section, they were all waving goodbye. And I got on the plane and I sobbed all the way to Hanoi. And I thought, why? And then I realized what had happened was I had gone over there giving up everything. My, uh, the job, I had no money, my girlfriend, my family, I hadn't even told my family I was going. With this idea, I am going to do something about this goddamn war. And I came back and it wasn't until I returned again in 2001 that I saw that their lives They'd made it. So the, the odd thing about it was that that promise to myself in 68 was not resolved until that 2001 that they time healed. of seeing them healed. That or they had survived heal. and healed and that, that my effort in that respect was over. Dick Hughes, actor, writer, founder of the Shoeshine Boys Project. This is Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.